Alright, uh, we're continuing today and we're in chapter 2 of Hebrews. Uh, in the history of the split between the Greek and uh, East, what we'd call the Eastern Church, and the Latin and the Roman Church, one of the key differences that developed was on the doctrine of atonement, or actually even bigger than that, just the doctrine of salvation. And what happened in the Latin West, and as you know, being part of the heirs of Protestantism, were very much uh, affected by this, that in the Western Church, the atonement and salvation uh, tended to focus on Jesus meeting the legal requirements of the law in his death. So that the death of Christ, almost to the exclusion of his life, resurrection, his ascension, has become the focus. In the Eastern Church, there has not been this legal focus, but a focus on the entire life of Christ as saving us, his life, his death, his resurrection. Um, And in the East, there has been the recognition that sin and death are very much tied together, so that death simply describes the orientation to sin. I think that we've missed a rich heritage of understanding uh, that we have there in the Eastern Church, and it comes out in the passage that we're going to read today uh, from Hebrews. Uh, I think that it becomes clear that the Eastern focus is something that we've really overlooked and we need, uh, I think, to appreciate. Let me read just a small portion. I will talk uh, more broadly about Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. And might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. And the writer is quoting here, and I haven't, we haven't read this, but um, as often happens you know, in the New Testament when they quote an Old Testament passage, they they mean the readers to understand the entire context. And so he quotes Psalms 22. You should be a little familiar with Psalms 22 because this is the psalm that Jesus quotes from the cross. Uh, And then the writer quotes Isaiah chapter 8, describing the coming destruction, you know, that Assyria is coming in to destroy Israel. And the people are so frightened that they're turning to mediums And they're turning to death itself um, for instruction. And in Isaiah it says, it is God you are to fear. It's not, you know, destruction from Assyria, and it's not the turning to death. The two passages brought together then, he's summing up in the passage I just read. Uh, Though, uh, you know, if you put it in its context, that due to fear, the turn to death itself becomes the solution. You know, they're afraid of the Assyrians coming in and destroying them. 
And so they turn to mediums, they turn to worship of the dead, as if death itself, and the, the word here that is used is in Isaiah, literally the word mocked. And we don't know if they're actually referring, they may actually, some think, worship death or the god of death. That's certainly true, and if you're familiar with Hindu religion, uh, that there is literally the god of, you know, uh, destruction and death, Shiva. So, in other words, the writer is summing up the problem of sin in the Old Testament. And then the reference to Psalms, you know, it is a picture of uh, Christ, and this is what he says, that Christ has defeated that fear of death. Uh, you are not to fear or be in dread of it. This is Isaiah passage. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. Um, they're doing precisely what you see in many places like Japan. They're going out and literally worshiping in the graveyard. You know, they're going out and offering incense to the dead. Uh, he shall be your fear. God shall be your fear. He shall be your dread. Then he shall become a sanctuary. If you understand what to fear, then you can take sanctuary in that understanding. But to both the houses of Israel, and this is the messianic prophecy, a stone to strike and a, stum a rock to stumble over and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. It's precisely the death of Christ. It's, you know, the, the Messiah incarnate that has become the stumbling stone. Many will stumble over them. Then they will fall and be broken. They will even be snared and caught. And so death is often pictured, you know, this wrong religion is often pictured as a deception, a snare, a lie. You know, think of Genesis 3. Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples, and I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his house from the house of uh, Jacob. I will even look eagerly for him. And here is the, you know, the writer of Hebrews just quotes this one passage, this one verse. But of course, I think he's referring to the whole context. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And then right after this, he's, you know, he's uh, attacking this false religion. When they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Do you go out to the graves? Do the dead hold some, you know, insight for us? I don't know if you remember Houdini after his wife died. You know, he began to consult mediums. He began to think, oh, I want to contact the dead, that maybe there's an insight there. It's a common understanding in many of the world's religions. And the Jews then are tempted by this same thing. In the face of the fear of death, they actually turn to death as if it is God itself. Should not a people consult their God, Isaiah says? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn, D-A-W-N, no light. It's just darkness. 
And so in ancestor worship and necromancy, which is the worship of the dead or seeking uh, mediums, um, I think that's the among the practices that's described in Isaiah 8. Actually, it's there in many places in the Old Testament and three or four places in Isaiah. I think what's happening, they're sacralizing death itself. What do you fear? Well, that thing you fear most, you make a god out of it. You call it Mot, you call it Shiva. You know, whatever uh, is the most fearful thing is determining the ter- determining factor in your religion and your worship. And of course, what this passage is saying is that this is precisely the way that Satan has control of us. That through the slavery of to the fear of death. And so the passage, you know, uh, whether the Israelites had overtly created a God, some think they have, others think it may be the equivalent, but the conscious and unconscious embrace and transformation of death, I think it's the same thing. In other words, I think what they're describing, what these people do in religion, we do. We all do this. That is that we take the fear of death and in some way we convert it into life itself. You know, how do you do this? Well, through human pride. You know, I won't think of the original lie in Genesis 3. You won't die. You'll be like God. And so we build our lives imagining that we can grab all the gusto we can or we imagine that we can in some way extract life for ourselves. Um, so death denied becomes death deified and made a refuge. In both passages, there is the ironic fear of being conquered by enemy armies. That is both in Psalms and in Isaiah. And this fear is one that the prophet says is misdirected. Who should you fear? Should you fear the Assyrians? Or should you fear God most? This is Hegel's question. What do you fear? Do you fear the master? Or do you fear, you know, what the master stands for? Um, Their fear, which is ultimately the fear of dying at enemy hands, has evoked a denial. They've denied the reality of, of death. And of course, when you deny the reality of death, you've actually denied the reality of life, haven't you? Um... The prophet describes the face-to-face confrontation with his message as sheer terror. Uh, Isaiah 28:19, And then uh, he says in Isaiah 65, there's a similar passage. I have spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts of people who continually provoke me to my face. Now listen to this. Offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on bricks. I'm pointing out here because I think that's precisely their place of worship is the cemetery. They're offering up incense out on the stones that mark the dead. Who sit among the graves and spend the night in secret places. Who eat swine's flesh. Now we had the discussion this morning, you know, the dietary laws... Here is an example of irreligion or misdirected religion or idolatrous religion in which swine's flesh is used. So it may in fact be that 
part of the food laws was a you know a forbidding of participation in eating what the pagans might eat. And the broth of unclean meat is in their pots. Who say to yourself, keep to yourself. They're saying this to God. God, keep yourself. Do not come near me. For I am holier than you. That is, they're saying death is more holy, more fearsome than God himself. These are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all day. And what we get from Isaiah and other places, this is literally called the covenant with death. Isaiah 28 says, You have made a covenant with death and with Sheol, the place of the dead, you have made a pact. The overwhelming scourge of death will not reach us, you say, when it passes by. For we have made a falsehood our refuge. And we have concealed ourselves within deception. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, here's again the Messianic passage, Behold, I am laying a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone, for the foundation firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be put to shame, will not suffer as these people are bound to suffer who imagine that they can trust in death. Now, I don't, I don't want to go into it, but let me just reference it or, or point to it. I think this is a religious problem. Sigmund Freud, his whole psychoanalytic understanding, at least the last half of it, is built on what the writer of Hebrews is saying. And that is that fear of death is the controlling factor in our lives. I think that this is a psychological reality. I think it's a religious reality. And I think it is the universal problem that is being talked about here in Hebrews and in these passages from Isaiah. How does Jesus save? He addresses this universal human problem. And this is what's at the heart of Hebrews 2. I think it's at the book, heart of the book of Hebrews, is the explanation of what God is doing in Christ to redeem mankind. What is taking place has to do with the lordship of Christ over death itself. In other words, death is the last enemy to be defeated. Death is not just something that happens at the end of our life. As in the Eastern Orthodox Church, there's the understanding, though, that death is the orientation that's tied up with sin itself. Sin and death describes the place of rebellion or the place where God is not acknowledged or the glory of God is not reflected. And so Christ, through his life, death, and resurrection, has brought his lordship to bear even in the midst of sin and death Because this is precisely our problem and predicament and it's the resolution to the problem that we all have. And so if sin and death are thought of as one integrated category, we can understand that death, the fear of death, is simply, and this is what the writer is doing, he's saying this is the way Satan, or evil, if you will, or deception, has control over your life. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, this is, you know, back to Hebrews 2, he partook of the same that through death he might render powerless. 
Him who had the power of death. You know, what is the does Satan have the power of death that he says, oh, you die, you die. It doesn't mean that, but it means that it is in and through death that sin or Satan rules over us or has power over us. And Christ then has broken this covenant with death. I believe he's done this psychologically. You can be freed mentally. You can be freed in your head. And he's done it in our Christian understanding. And of course those two are not separate. They go together. The covenant with this death describes the universal human predicament which the gospel addresses. Now is the judgment of the world. Now shall the ruler of this world be cast out, Jesus says in the gospel. When I am lifted up the cross, right, from the earth, I will draw all men unto myself. Why is the crucifixion attractive? You know, why would that draw all people to Christ? That's not a very attractive thing inherently, is it? But it is attractive if we understand that it's in the cross of Christ that Christ is addressing the human problem, the human predicament. From the fall of man, the picture is that humans entered into an agreement with a a deception. You know, this is Genesis chapter 3. You won't die, you'll be like gods, knowing good and evil. Believe the lie of Satan, you will not die, and you die. Right? That's the irony of this. And Jesus undoes this. He says, he who would save his life shall lose it. That is that our religious systems, our you know, value systems, are self-salvation systems. If you're going to save your life in this manner, it is going to kill you. Your life will be one prolonged destructive process. You know, knowing good and evil. You, you know, that becomes the mode of this system. They're displacing knowing God... And I don't believe it's just Adam and Eve. I think it's the human predicament that we imagine that we could in some way establish our being, our, you know, eternal life on the basis of our knowing through our own powers. Habakkuk 2.5 describes this, you know, this is desire. It's always connected with desire. That it's a desire that's as greedy as the grave. James says, that it's like being drug away. Let no one say that I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. That is, desire is very much caught up into this. Desire or covetousness in Romans 7, you know, uh, that he, I did not know what it was to covet, to desire, apart from the command, thou shalt not Covet. I think Paul's referring back to Genesis chapter 3 that she began to see that it was good for food and good for you know life and she began to desire it. She lusted after it. This is what Jesus connects to the history of murder. He says that this is not only death dealing individually, but this is death dealing in our relationships to other people. He goes back, he references Genesis chapter 4, you know, with the killing of Abel, 
and traces the history of murder. He's talking to the, you know, the Pharisees. You are like concealed tombs, and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. That is, you're walking on this thing you imagine that gives life. You imagine there's life in being in the law, and you you're actually uh, being trapped or snared by death. One of the lawyers said, Teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. He said, You lawyers weigh men down with burdens. Woe to you. You build the tombs of the prophets. And it was your fathers who killed them. You like prophets. But what kind of prophets do you like? Dead ones. And you say to me, you know, that... Uh, uh, you know that your deeds are are you know that we we've been true to Abraham. He says your witnesses and approve the deeds of your father because it was they who killed them and you build their tombs. And what Jesus goes on to say, and you're about to kill me too. They're going to kill Jesus for the same reason they've always killed the prophets. And he goes back. He says from the blood of Cain. To the blood of Zechariah, the entire history of murder is caught up in this deception, this false religion, this false understanding. We could go through you know, the history of the problem. Maybe the simple way of describing it, you know, who are these Pharisees, the lawyers, what's their problem? It's the problem of human pride. They imagine they can save themselves in and through the law. In the Old Testament, you know, there's God says, I am that I am. Do you know who else says I am? Satan. I am and there is none beside me. When Satan says it, it's a lie from hell. And when we say it, it's a lie from hell. We do not have life within ourselves. Jesus accuses the Pharisees. He says, your native language is that of your father. He was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. And so the, the understanding is that there's a death-denying identity that's called pride. And it's reversed. I think this is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. It's reversed in Christ's suffering, his humility. And it's describing then the path of glory is not by avoiding suffering and death, but by passing through it. The writer of Hebrews will talk about that Jesus is our pioneer, our leader, the author of life. He perfects us. He perfects by becoming perfectly human, suffering, and then ascending as our high priest. What is it that he does as high priest? He mediates to us, first of all, courage, resurrection power in the face of death. That... uh, we can take up our cross and follow Jesus because we're empowered by what he's done in going up to Jerusalem and dying. Jesus doesn't, you know, it's not that he is perfect by shedding his body and then arising, you know, into heaven. Uh, But we're told exactly the opposite. He enters the holy place with his own blood, For we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. His flesh is the curtain that gains us access to the holy place. 
The picture of glory, of God's glory, is not one that's given to Christ or to any of us outside of the body, but precisely in and through suffering and death, facing the reality of sin and death, we overcome it. In other words, the flight from death is sin, taking up your cross and following Christ is the resolution to the sin problem. And in that way, we can share in Christ's glory. Um, Paul in Romans 3 says that it's precisely because, you know, it's the lack of glory that we have, uh, that we've fallen short of the glory of God. Christ restores that glory. What's glory? It's the presence of God in the midst of corruption. What's the most corrupt thing? You know, corruption in English and also in Greek is a two has a twofold meaning. Corruption means death, right? But it also has the idea of a moral corruption. When is that you know culminates in the life of Christ is on the cross, his death, but also the moral corruption of mankind that put him there. He defeats sin and death on the cross because it's there that in the midst of that corruption that his glory shines forth. And this is what the book of John you know, just says over and over again that his glory then was found in the cross. Here the glorification is his, resur- his death, his resurrection, uh, in, you know, in his return to the Father in the ascension. Only after Jesus was glorified did the disciples realize what had been written about him, it says in John. They says, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And so Jesus is presented in the gospel as the full and complete revelation of God's presence and his nature precisely where we need it. You know, it's not just in our death, but it's in our life oriented to death that Christ saves us. And so in his prayer, you know, this is the high priestly prayer in John. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. And this glory, John said, was also spoken by the prophet in Isaiah. And so the glorification of Christ in his death, his resurrection, is a power of glory. Glory is just the presence of God, right? Death is the absence of God. Sin and death is the absence of God. Glory in the midst of the corruption of death is given to us in Christ. Christ is to be found there precisely where we might think he is absent. Now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself. And so glory is connected to incorruptibility, which is most fully exposed in the midst of corruption. And so this is, in this, the Eastern Church gets it right. I think we've missed it. That death, sin and death are a corruption of the human condition that's repaired by Christ, made right. So uh, salvation is an orientation we live out uh, in, in connection uh, and uh, to the entire life, death. You know, how does Jesus save us? Does he just save us in his death? The picture here in Hebrews 2 uh, is that he saves us throughout his life, death, and resurrection. 
In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Here is the author of glory for us. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. And so we become the children of God as we put off the fear of death, the power of death that is the devil, and we are free from those who are no longer subject to the slavery, to the fear of death. Let's sing our hymn of meditation.